You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because it's really hot out there, and I Need to Do World Building is a great excuse to get you out of yard work. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca, and this is episode 79, Building Past the Horizon. Well, welcome back, listeners, to what, if I am not mistaken, is the beginning of our fourth year doing this podcast. Happy birthday, everyone. Happy day to us. I mean, we've we've lasted this long and and not driven each other the bad kind of crazy, at least. (laughs) No, we just just feed each other the good kind of crazy. (laughs) Yes, yes. And that works. That works for self-perpetuating loop of the good kind of crazy (laughs) so listeners thank you for those of you who have stuck with us for all these years and thank you if you're just joining us we are happy to have you along for the good kind of crazy ride thank you for continuing to enable us and our madness (laughs) maybe we should do a little reintroduction of ourselves and and all the brilliant things that we do (laughs) what am i i suppose Great idea. You go first. <laughs> all right. All right. My name is Marshall Ryan Maresca. I am a primarily a fantasy author. Uh, I've written 15 books now. Most of them are within the Meridane saga, um, starting with The Thorn of Denton Hill. And, and you can look up the rest of the titles on my website, which is mrmaresca.com, because I'm not going to list them all off because that'd be crazy. And then my one book that's not in the Meridane saga is The Velocity of Revolution, which is a queer norm diesel punk fantasy uh, about motorcycles and tacos and revolution against colonizers. And all that stuff is fueled by my crazy world-building needs that I need to go deeper and wilder <laughs> and stranger when all of that is on display in all the books. So go get them. Read them. Rowena? I'm Rowena Miller, and I am also a fantasy author. You'll find that we have that in common. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> I have three books currently out, a trilogy, The Unraveled Kingdom, which is sartorial sorcery and rebellion and revolution and political intrigue and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, And forthcoming next year is The Fairy Bargains of Prospect Hill, which is a historical fantasy fae mischief and magic and mayhem so that's what i've got um in my spare time i chase a couple of kids raise a bunch of chickens and have a couple of goats just for fun and i'm cass morris strangely enough also a fantasy writer (laughs) it's what we do here weird how that happened all three of us strange my debut series is The Oven Cycle. It is ancient Roman-flavored historical epic fantasy. I gave the ancient Romans magic to see what they would do with it, and it's wonderful and terrible things. The first two books were recently re-released in shiny new ebook editions, which you can find at your favorite purveyor of such things. The third book I am hoping is going to be out later this year. Elsewhere in my life, um, I am an educator, I am a Shakespeare scholar, and that's actually influencing the project I'm working on currently, which is also very much informed by all the discussions we have on this on this wonderful podcast and all the wonderful guests we have. That's just really, really encouraged me to push my world building further, make more different, weirder choices, and it's a lot of fun to play with. So hopefully I'll, you know, eventually finish that and perhaps have news. <laughs> about it in the future weird so keep listening weird is good weird is very good i i mean at least for me the most rewarding part about having been doing this with y'all for the past three years and hopefully who knows how long is how much it's raised my game on on the books i've been writing and and forced me to to evaluate the choices i've been making and being like oh i can i can do that better i can do that weirder and it's i mean it's been a great experience and just it's like we have this regular workshop with each other to to make ourselves better and i'm so grateful to you both for that it has been a fantastic time and i am so thrilled to still be here it's great 
Another thing to be thrilled about is that we are um, Hugo nominated <gasps> for the second time. And if I am not mistaken, Hugo voting did just open. So if you are a member of Worldcon for this year and would be so inclined, do go ahead and check out the voting packet. We're there, and I think it was fun. We got to pick some of our favorite episodes, which was probably the hardest part of the whole process because <laughs> we like going back and forth debating which which ones do we put in. They were all so much fun. Yes, I think Hugo um, voting is open through August 11th. I think that's the correct date. That sounds right. And you get to vote if you are either an attending or a supporting member of this year's Worldcon, which is being held in Chicago. If you're attending, uh, we would love to see you when we're there. That'd be awesome. But if you're just a supporting member, you do get the Hugo Packet, which is just, I mean, chock full of amazing goodies. And it's uh, it's $50 to have a membership at that level. But you get books, you get um, novellas, you get novelettes, you get short stories, you get audio and video stuff. It's an absolutely gobsmacking I value. Mean, you um, you get way more than fifty dollars worth. Way of more material. I did not know this. I didn't know. And about I mentioned this. it because yeah, I didn't know it was a thing until last year when they gave me one, and I was like, wait, what? So it's super cool. So if that sounds fun to you, if you would like to have a bunch of new books and short stories and novellas and things to read, graphic novels. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in there. Um, please do consider supporting Worldcon, and then you also get to vote on all the things. And if you're attending, hopefully you'll get to see us there doing smart things there but if before that all three of us are also going to be in the same place at armadillo con here in austin texas in august i think it's august 5th through 7th so in theory that will really really be the first time all three of us have been in the same room at the same time <laughs> well i am so excited for that um i have not been to armadillo con before but i have seen people just rave about it and they they invited me to come down and i'm really excited there's also a, a writing workshop and they have sponsored seats for marginalized authors so you can find more information about that on the armadillo con website if you would like to go and attend the writing workshop please look into it well i think that is all we have in the way of exciting announcements and updates and news and fun stuff to look forward to so let's talk world building one of the things I wanted to talk about this time around is just the idea of obviously whichever part of the world, like your story or if you're in role playing, the, the part that your characters are interacting the most with, that's where you're going to do the most work and do your do your deep dive stuff to make that as as thoroughly built and interesting as possible. But there is going to be the wider world and unless you're the kind of chaos muppet who can just be like there might be another continent across the sea i don't know yet i haven't decided which if you can do that power to you but if you can do that you're probably not listening to this podcast <laughs> <laughs> and you want to be able to have a strong sense of what the rest of the world is without necessarily having to overburden yourself with too much of the work so that you at least have that sense and then you can like do deeper dives into the rest of the world as needs be but i thought it would be good for us to talk about how to like get that wider sense of what's going on elsewhere in the world in a quick and easy way in as much as you can quick and easy and then without also doing ugly stereotypes for your as a quick and easy way because you don't want to do that you want to do neat and interesting I mean, I think that that is a really good point that, you know, what, it probably doesn't matter if you are on our particular brand of geeky bullshit or not. <laughs> you end up spending more time in one place um, than you do others, whether that is a function of the world building you do to build up to a story or the world building that happens as you're fleshing things out as you're writing the story. The, the space you're writing into is going to get more attention. It's going to get more love. It's kind of what it is. So how do you avoid the rest of the world feeling like it's a flimsy backdrop that's just kind of like, there's things. They're over there. They're over there. There's other people who are something. And moving on. <laughs> Beyond the woods we know, there might be more woods. But we don't know. Yeah. A sense of a broader world is <laughs> useful. And I think, too, it, it probably depends 
not insignificantly what kind of a story it is, what kinds of characters you're dealing with, and what kind of like world you're dealing with in terms of tech level and in terms of communication, in terms of trade routes, things like that, are going to inform what kinds of development you are going to do, need to do. If you have, say, a very prehistoric kind of people, and the character that you're following is an ordinary Joe who never really leaves his particular corner of the world, he probably knows less than someone who's, say, in an age of sale, trading port town. Like, those two people are going to know very different things. The story is going to have different things touching it. So I think kind of being aware of, like, maybe you can get away with a little more hand waviness in some worlds, some stories, some places in the timeline on the exact same world than you can in others. I think, too, sometimes it's a matter of the character knowing there is more world out there, even if they don't know what that is, or even if they have comic misperceptions about what that is. Um, they still know there's something else. Very rarely is is a character unaware that there's life outside their village, at least, you know, past a certain age, past a certain um, level of maturity and awareness. I do think that can be fun to play with. I'm thinking about things like The Giver, mm. where... The people inside those closed communities really don't know about an outside world. But I think that's rare, and I think that's making a different kind of point than we often are when we do our our, our, our particular kind of world building. Yeah, like if you're doing the kind of story where the point is they're isolated in some, for whatever reason, that they are have no contact with the outside world or have been treated like the outside world is non-existent. And then oftentimes the story is, oh, wait. There is life outside of our valley, and and oh, my entire worldview has been exploded now because because I I stepped outside, I crossed the line that the ancients told me not never to cross. Oops, and <laughs> turns out I've known naught but lies all this time. I did not immediately crumble to ash. <laughs> now I must go discover things. Carousel is a lie. <laughs> I feel like there's an episode of Star Trek about that, as there is about most things, where they encounter some civilization that like literally can't leave a certain boundary. I think it turns out it's because they're all, all actually holograms, but they don't know that. They they don't know that they're holograms. And they just think, no, this this little valley is all that there is. We don't know where you strange people came from. It's very upsetting to us, but... I mean, I think that one of the earliest things that you can do to kind of start to poke at, like, what else is there, is just to start looking at the things that your character is using in their everyday life and ask where did it come from. Like, I think that can be kind of a fun game to play. Like, okay, so your character wakes up in the morning and they make breakfast and they have a cup of coffee. Well, they don't live in a place where coffee grows. So where did the coffee come from and how did it get there? And are they aware of how it got there and what trade routes have been established? And you kind of start to like poke things like that. Okay, so they're reading a book. Was it was it published in their own country? Was it translated from somewhere else? You can start to kind of really play with, you know, Who what... made the paper and how? Right. What little ordinary things that, because we're very used to our very global marketplace, our very globalized world, that if you didn't question those things, it's like, oh, wait, no, hold on. That's actually revealing quite a bit about how we live. And it can reveal quite a bit about how fantasy characters live too. Yeah. And I think even within our our world where we are used to a global market, we know that things come from other places, but most of the stuff that we get do we really like are you, are you consciously aware of where everything you ate today comes from you know was it packaged in illinois did it come from florida did it come from mexico did it come from um south america and i think this you know like the the global supply chain problems we've been having for the last year or so illustrate to us that like even in this global world those things can break down fast and then you become viscerally aware of, oh, I didn't realize how much baby formula we get from Canada. <laughs> hmm. Boy, probably screwing over a trade deal with them was not the brightest choice in the world. <laughs> but like from a day-to-day basis, you don't think you don't you don't think about it until there's a problem, I think is the the world we tend to live in. And is that true for your characters? Or are your characters like really aware of where everything comes from because they have to get it themselves or they can only get it at a certain time of year. They can only get it when this one particular trade ship comes to town. Or it's really effing expensive. Yeah. 
Fucking saffron. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking saffron. (laughs) The most ludicrous of spices. (laughs) It absolutely is. (laughs) That'd be a good marketing campaign for saffron. (laughs) Speaking of speaking of spices. I think that poking at food is a really fun one, too, because we talk about food so often on this podcast. But one of the things we've talked about not infrequently is diaspora and food and influences of one culture's food on another culture. And so kind of like where where did eating toad in the hole for breakfast come from for your character? Is this the way it has been for thousands of years or did they just learn about this from this group that moved into the area in the last 50 years and set up a lot of toad-in-the-hole shops on every corner, and that's where they buy their breakfast. I mean, you know, kind of asking those sorts of questions of what influences are playing with your character's world. Or heck, the concept of breakfast. Where did that come from? And how long has has that been part of the world? I mean, it astounds me... the number of things I've like researched into and like, where did this come from? Why, why is this a, you know, considered a universal thing? It's like, Oh, it's not universal. It's really just, it started in America in the 1950s. The number of things that were just like, Oh no, it's America in the 1950s. <laughs> that, that that's the answer. It astounds me sometimes. But also one of the things is you need to decide what else is, you know, over, over the next hill, across the ocean and all that how do you what's the best tactic to do that in sort of a non-gross way so many fantasy worlds kind of start with that this is western europe in the middle ages with the serial numbers scrubbed off that then they'll be like okay so then this part is mediterranean europe with the serial numbers scrubbed off and then this part is the middle east with the serial numbers scrubbed off and then this part is north africa with the serial numbers <laughs> filed off and then this part is asia with the serial numbers filed off and doing that again and again especially within the same world then you're really showing the seams of the laziness of the world building well and it definitely drags into it as well a lot of kind of nasty orientalism that stretches back centuries of of having this is home base and then there is other and other is different and exotic and i think that that's that's a risk that you can definitely run when you are too directly antecedent in what you're pulling into your world building and not that we can't learn very valuable things from real world cultures i'm not saying that at all but when you do the start in western europe and then you like float out into other places that are very directly inspired by other real world places you have to be really aware of what you're doing or it can get kind of yucky it also stands out especially if what you are scrubbing the serial numbers off of is already this sort of sanded down stereotyped unresearched version of these other parts of the world so you're you're already doing two levels of fogging up the lens of making it into something that is painting a far more inaccurate picture of what you're taking from and thus drawing more and more bad stereotypes and probably making people upset by reading your book. <laughs> as, as they may well have a right to be. Yes. <laughs> making people yeah, rightly upset like the, <laughs> when reading your book. It's like the problem of making a copy of a copy of a copy. Plus racism. So <laughs> what you were copying was oh. racism. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's it's amazing too because so many of that stuff. I mean, so much of it was was basically fantasy to begin with, and so it ends up it ends up in a whole complex web of, as you're saying, Xerox upon Xerox upon fantasy Xerox of Xerox fantasies. Right. If you read the Marco Polo's Adventures, which is his actual like journal of what he did there there's so much of that it's not here's a place i didn't go but this is what people told me about it and i don't know if like they had their own legends of what was happening in the island or they were just like fucking with him and just be like yeah they've got two heads on that island and he's just like two heads that's very interesting duly noted or like like the the greeks who really thought that the antipodes were populated by people whose heads were like in their torsos and, and that's part of their like natural histories that get written down it's like no one's seen these things it's a story of a story of a story that's been passed through so many miles and so many people that what it really probably was was somebody saw a lemur and and didn't know what to make of that animal 
and once again, the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy of the story, we suddenly get the Antipodean people in Greek theorization. For all we know, the origin of that was just two guys drunk. who's was like, we need to tell them something about Antipodes. Nobody's even gone. Um, make some shit up. I don't know. <laughs> just, I don't know. What, what if, be... dude, what if their faces were in their chest? Oh, that's so cool. Write it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. And not that I don't think that... Not that I don't think that that fucking with people can't be a fantastic world building tactic, because I do think that, I mean, this is has happens over and over again, right? That you've got someone buying this story that's clearly absolute bullshit and it ends up making the rounds and people believe it or maybe some people don't believe it, but some people do believe it. And I think that you can probably get some mileage out of that in a world building sense of like, yes, that's the place that we don't know a lot about. Here's what we think we know. You communicate to the reader very quickly. Oh, they don't fucking know what's going on there at all. That's just a bunch of, you know, total crap. But you do get a sense of what the people think about that space. Is it safe? Is it unsafe? Are the people mm-hmm. there people that you would, would know how to engage with or not? All these kinds of nuances of, of how they understand the world around them. Stories, and especially bullshit stories, can do a lot to, to you know, share that. And I think that can be a great way to show your reader that the whether it's just the bullshit story or the copy of a copy of a copy story is not the reality in the world is to like have some characters talking about it and like different opinions on what they've heard and maybe one character who actually knows more than the others going y'all that is not how anything works but you all really believe it and i don't seem to be able to stop you from believing it because that's how people are that's how people talk about things and the same way i think there are ways to define the world by what your central characters think of spaces outside their space that can play into their assumptions and biases and prejudices without necessarily replicating real world grossness in those things and i'm thinking about how and these are real world examples but it's it's not linked to race or skin tone in the same way that that our our modern problems are the romans actually the greeks and the romans respectively tended to define everything to the east of them as just decadent wildness uh, luxurious people who love their perfumes and their silks and everyone to the west of them as barbarians who drink milk which is super weird and they wear trousers which is even weirder and like these are very strange prejudices these are very strange things to build a prejudice upon but it makes a weird kind of sense and it's really funny because like it starts with the greeks and then the romans pick it up the romans who were of course barbarians as far as the greeks were concerned truth is always dependent on where you're standing and sometimes that's literal sometimes like literally where you are the the ground you stand upon is going to define what truth is for a character a french guy did the same thing in like 1600 except it was a north-south divide everything to the north the people were pale and sluggish and and sort of dull but very hardworking, very industrious we admire them for that Everyone to the south was very uh, hot-blooded and temperamental and passionate and prone to violence, but very sexy, too. And the only place of perfect moderation was France. <laughs> of course. <laughs> because that's where this dude was from. And so, like, I think you can gesture to the rest of the world and what your characters think about it in ways that can be over the top, can be blatantly false, and things that you can cue to your reader, like, these are false, these are exaggerations, these are over-assumptions but still replicate how people do interact with the world around them. And like you were saying, Rowena, that's going to look different based on their culture, how much exposure they have to a wider world. Is it they literally never leave their small village or are they a bustling port town? Will change how much they buy into the the here there be dragons of it all, really. But it's interesting because exactly what you're saying, Cass, that you you can reveal like what an individual, like what their perspective is, what their perspective on other groups is, what their perspective on themselves is through these stories that we tell ourselves. And I think I brought it up before, there's this rather hilarious diary of a Hessian soldier um, during the, the American Revolution. And he, he clearly is being told a lot of stories as he's traveling around the colonies. And my favorite is the man-eating lobsters off the coast of New York. But my second favorite is somewhere along the line, someone tells him, that the Quakers all have gold hidden under their houses. 
They seem really austere, but they're all hiding gold under their houses. There's a bunch of Quaker gold just hidden under the streets of Philadelphia, like in these, you know, under these houses. And it reveals immediately so much of what the local people think about this other group that they're not a part of and what he's willing to buy into as an outsider. Um, that clearly... No one could possibly be that virtuous and right. selfless. They must be hiding something. <laughs> and th- we don't really trust them. They're a little weird. We don't really get what they've got going on. So, and he as an outsider of a particular culture is saying, okay, yeah, sounds, sounds about right to me. They seem kind of seem kind of weird. So he, he buys it, writes it down in his book with no questions asked if this is in fact the truth. Much like the meat-eating lobsters, he does not question the meat-eating lobsters. Someone <laughs> saw one once. Are, are you going to dive would, in and check? I, no. You're, no? You're, people say there's no, meat-eating lobsters in there, you'll be like, okay, not going in then. <laughs> I'm going to take it on faith. <laughs> but then you imagine this guy's taking his, his story back to Germany with him. I, he may have had it published during his lifetime, I'm not sure. But then all these other people are reading this, and the story of the meat-eating lobsters spreads and the impression that everyone in you know his local area at least the people that he encountered if it wasn't published and wider if it was published you know understand that quakers are all hiding gold under their houses what a weird untrustworthy goofy group of people we've never met any of them but we believe this fervently yes. about them now <laughs> we we know yeah. we know that that's because because they told him and he told us so we know we we, we know yeah. everything we need to know because because we had a we had a trusted news source, <laughs> <laughs> though that that does bring to mind to me like when you're when you're doing your below the iceberg below the the sea level iceberg work, what point of view are you presenting these things about the rest of the world in? Even if it's only for your own edification, not for the things you're actually putting in the book, but getting past your own sort of blind spots and biases when you are even putting this stuff down are you acknowledging that you're putting stuff down from a subjective perspective or are you trying to write it from an objective perspective in showing what the rest of the world is in an accurate way these are the things i i've racked my brain late into the into the night trying to think of the best way just simply to have this stuff documented for my own purposes in a way that doesn't doesn't seem overly biased or blind spotted or reductive yeah i think when it comes to like the series bible or whatever you know my own notes i try to make it as encyclopedia like as possible which is not to say that encyclopedias (laughs) can't also have bias because of who i mean everything written has bias because every human has bias like that's always going to be a thing. We are shaped by our experiences. We are shaped by the cultural soup that we exist in. So that's, there's always going to be some of that. But I do try to strip it down as much as possible and, and reflect like what the people what the people in that culture would objectively know about themselves. And especially if it's something that is not going to be a focus. It's just sort of a space on the map. A country exists there. Its ruler is this guy. It's this form of government. And that may be all I need to write down about it. You know, if, if we're never going to go there, if we're never going to go to Hibernia, do I need to get into a lot of cultural detail? Not so much. Probably a, a, a general sketch. And it's hard for me to not want to do that to every single corner of the maps that I draw. But yeah, I, I, I tend to take a more encyclopedic view, I think. And it is interesting because, I mean, if you if you really push past our bias of wanting to fill in the entire map and have the <laughs> answers for every throw a dart at that map and I can tell you anything about that spot that it hits there's a lot of stuff that you probably don't have to know and so when you kind of like come to that acceptance of like you don't actually have to know it then it kind of can swing back around to that question of okay so if I do know things about it from what perspective do do I want to know them from what perspective do I want to share them and that's it it may be an entirely pragmatic question for any individual as a world builder. What pragmatically do I have to know in order to realistically portray the world, the story, the character? And the reality is maybe you don't have to know how many other continents exist in the world. It's a very uncomfortable thought for Marshall. He looks like he's actually broken out in a cold sweat. He's squirming in his seat. It's but kind of hilarious. But... 
it's, you know, if you're going to answer the question honestly, you know, there, there may be four particular stories. You, you don't have to know the, the trade winds and the migratory patterns of the turns and the, um, where the, the seals gather on which beach in which continent that you don't exist in <laughs> and what the, the religion of that island over there is. You know, if you... If you know what you need to know, then you can start to develop that richness more organically sometimes, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Though, it, there is for me certainly the, the the aspect of simply filling out the map. Like, okay, you've drawn out the whole map because you drew a whole world map. Because of course you did. Um, because cause this is what we do here. And then you have, you know, the part of the world that you're focusing on. And then... In the wider world, I, I feel like you need to at least be aware of, like, enough things of, like, you know, are the people on this continent, are they actually more advanced than everybody else and colonizing assholes? Because that's going to that's affect everything else. <laughs> because that's going to affect everything else. Or, you know, or are they, you know, on relatively the same level? Like, is there an aspect of that information that you need to know because it would have some sort of ripple effect? on everything else or is there you know do you just need to know simply because there could be these wider trade routes or whatever because you know somebody if there if it is one big continent somebody's gonna try and cross it just because that's what humans do is you know i'm bored let's see what's because what's over there. that next mountain because it's there so let's let's see what's over there <laughs> and even even if it is for for altruistic or terrible reasons they're still going to climb over that hill and see what people are there but i think it's interesting too because you talk about filling out the map and you make decisions you've you've set some things in stone when you fill out the map from kind of like the top down angle but even if you are writing from kind of like a bottom up angle you start with your character you start with a story you start building from a very particular place you've already made decisions about the rest of the world whether you meant to or not you're going to have a really really hard time writing a story in which i've set this in basically early 20th century equivalent in technology but i'm gonna try to put a group over there that's that's like medieval but they have contact with us somehow wait this i've made decisions that make that impossible i can't do that anymore so you know you you write yourself into particular choices based upon the world building that you do when you don't even mean to be building past those horizons that you've set for yourself (laughs) though i just imagined having your you know medieval Europe with the, the serial numbers filed off version of your fantasy world. And then they they get their big sailboats and they're like, we're going to sail across the ocean, the ocean. And that place is like 21st century. Like, oh, no, we've always treated you all like a preserve. We didn't want to bother you. Because <laughs> you, you, I mean, like we're, but they're well, well past. But like there does seem to be like what kind of technological... What kind of technological separation is between two different cultures is reasonable? Like, certainly there's, you know, there still are plenty of Neolithic level civilizations here on, on Earth right now that, that are isolated and don't. And even those will have interactions with the modern world where they don't, where they're like, you know, they're not they're not changing how they live and partly because we don't force that upon or didn't or we did but okay i'm and in the best case scenario they're unimpressed by us in the best case they're unimpressed by us and we're like okay fine do your thing well yeah there's like there's there's that island in the indian ocean that just straight up murders anybody that lands (laughs) on it and i respect them for that like fair they're like no we're not we don't want to be part of your world. Yeah. And we will straight up murder you if you land on our shores. But yeah, it's sort of the prime directive question, right? Like, if, if a civilization is sufficiently behind you in technology, is the ethical thing to do to leave it alone and, and let it develop entirely on its own? But it's hard for me to see, and maybe this is my own limitations, a world where part of the world is at, like, a World War One level of technology and part of the world is at just a like age of sail technology 
and is and having those interact in a way that still works but maybe it can maybe i i'm being limited in how i'm thinking no i mean i think i think it's interesting because we talk about our like this is your this is a defining world building thing like we created the MNG by accident. It became a defining world building thing. You have a magical gate that pops people out into other parts of the world. They pop out nude. That's cool. But we realized that it can't be a throwaway concept. You can't just have that as part of the world that's a throwaway concept. And I think if you're going to have the world in which half of it is like 1920 and half of it is like 1600, that's a defining concept and you have to figure out how it's going to work. And that yeah. figuring out how it's going to work just defined a lot about your world whether it's magic or whether it's some kind of weird time warpy thing or whether it's some kind of boundary or barrier like you just you again without even meaning to you wrote like half the half the world building bible there and you may have opened up some really interesting ideas and you probably shut off some other ideas so you know when you have those kind of really stretch ideas it, it's gonna end up defining the world in ways that I hope you're comfortable with <laughs> which could go into ugly places and that's that's part of the challenge yeah. is how do you how do you find that balance of what you're doing with that the thing i've been playing with is the um the ongoing work in progress i sort of deliberately made a smaller world than i've played with before in part in the hopes that it would help me focus and not keep trying to write too many stories simultaneously all happening in the same world um, and so we've got sort of this um, how's that, how's that section going? of the globe. <laughs> well, let's just say I created different problems for myself. <laughs> but so I've, I've got a section of, of the globe as it is, and it's mostly, it's sort of archipelago-ish. It's some larger islands and then a bunch of scattering of smaller islands. And I decided that the peoples who live there now all migrated to there. There was no, you know... Um, indigenous population to avoid gross colonialism. They all migrated from there at around the same time from a bunch of other different cultures. But I gave them climate change of some kind to cut them off from the rest of the world, essentially, to make it so that we were able to get here. But at some point in the history, long enough ago that we don't really remember or have great records of the places that we all came from, but recent enough that we do know those places exist. Like we know there's something on the other side of the storm seas. We know that's where we came from, but we no longer have contact with them and they can't get to us and we can't get to them. And so this section of the globe has been allowed to develop differently. And I have not decided what's on the other side of the storm seas. I have not decided what those cultures have grown into in the time since they diverged from where I'm writing. And I've decided to be okay with that because it won't touch my characters and that sort of solved for me the problem of i am only looking at a small section of the globe and i don't have to define too much what's outside of it or get distracted by what's outside <laughs> of it because the temptation is always there for me <laughs> well it can always be a lovely little box that you put up on the shelf and you tie it up with a little bow and you're like but maybe later when i have some inspiration that strikes, or I want to play a little bit more with that. It's there. You build a whole world. It's always there. And there is that pragmatism of like, you know what? Sometimes having some places to explore in your world isn't a terrible idea from a mercenary business standpoint. If this book sells a million copies, the sequel will be about crossing the Storm Sea or somebody coming from the Storm Sea. But I'm not going to worry about that now. <laughs> What's funny about that is one of my backburner projects is exactly that. It's, you know... The main characters are from a series of islands that had been isolated because there was this magical barrier around the islands. And they have only just figured out how to get through the barrier. And now they're like, all right, let's let's see the rest of the world now that, <laughs> now that we've figured out how to get to the rest of the world. Oh, the rest of the world is full of murder. Uh-oh. <laughs> we, we need to... We need to be careful about how we're seeing the rest of the world. But we also kind of need to because our islands are full and there's no space. It's funny, too. You, you were talking about sort of not being able to imagine a world that's split between, you know, centuries worth of technology where perhaps one part would sort of be left alone. And I wonder how much of that is tied to the idea and the history that our cultures have come through in the last few hundred years that so many technological developments 
occurred in the service of imperialism and colonialism. Yeah. You know, like even if the people who individually invented a thing weren't thinking, ah, yes, we shall use this for terrible purposes. Their cultural soup had a lot of terrible in it. And, you know, when we think about some of the major technological definitions of steam engines, they occur so much within the context of their time and of imperialism and colonialism. And I just I wonder if that's affecting our brains and our ability to like to think about different levels of technology in that way it's a bias that it's hard thing to see through and but you also remind me of the guy who invented the machine gun apparently thought he was going to end all war because no one (laughs) (laughs) only a madman would would send somebody up against this like well (laughs) nice try i'm so sad for that guy like gosh that's a that's That's unfortunate that's a swing and a miss that's (laughs) You really thought you were doing something there, buddy. (laughs) I think it is. We do have to be careful, though, also not to, I guess, in some ways, infantilize the other side of the imperialism coin. And there there is a natural human curiosity that I see a new thing and I want to play with it. And so a lot of of the spread of technology and things like that has also just been because, okay, I saw this thing and I'm not going to use it like that. I'm going to use it like this instead. But it still is going to kind of push, you know, cultures in different directions. Um, again, avoiding the whole static thing that cultures don't just stay static forever. Um, but that contact, I think, even though many contacts have been in a very gross power imbalance, those who have been on the kind of, you know, marginalized or un unbalanced side of those power equations have often still used the technology they encounter to their own ends in really ingenious ways to create an example to draw upon an example that is perhaps absurd but i love it the ewoks using stormtrooper helmets as drums (laughs) like they encountered something new and uh they put it to a different use (laughs) because you have to you know capture the pelt of your enemy and (laughs) everyone thinks they're cute little teddy bears but i'm telling you those are bloodthirsty warriors They, they they clearly have a warrior culture so yeah i I, I wouldn't fight a group of Ewoks. I would not want to fight Ewoks. No. Heck no. I mean, there's there's always the question of where did they get that dress that fits Leia? Who did they kill before who wore that dress? Probably eight. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know. <laughs> before I turn this into a this is now a Star Wars podcast. culture podcast. <laughs> Look, man, I am enjoying the current media so much, and there is nothing that hijacks my brain as thoroughly as Star Wars. The fact that it took me like forty minutes in this podcast before I brought up Star Wars today is a personal victory. You did very well. I've thought about it at least three times. I mean, speaking of Star Wars, we are now all Wikipedia official in the Star Wars canon. We are! (laughs) Coolest thing ever. Thanks, Mike Chen. You're the best. For for those who don't know what we're babbling on about, recently Mike Chen's (laughs) new book, Brotherhood, is that it? Do I have that right? Brotherhood, Brotherhood. Star Wars Brotherhood. He he deliberately threw in an Easter egg that's a nod to the three of us because he's just that cool. And now we're just that cool because we're part of the Star Wars universe. (laughs) If there's anything that is going to make my nephew think I'm cool, this is it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're in Star Wars. (laughs) Yeah. I do think, like, I was was thinking this the other day, though, this, that Star Wars is a great example of, like, starting with a small story. Not, well, not a small story, but, like, I was watching A New Hope on Star Wars Day and as you do. thinking about how many, <laughs> as, one does. as I do, of course, as one does on May 25th every year, obviously, thinking about how many references there are in the dialogue to things that at least at that time in 1977, we never see, we never talk about, we never hear about again. How many planets and cultures and people and droid types and weapon types and vehicle types are just sort of dropped in as very casual references in the dialogue. And many of them have been picked up over the last 45 years and, and developed further, but they didn't have to be. We accept that when Luke says he's going to Tashi Station for power converters, we're like, ah. That's what you do. Tashi Station, the <laughs> power place where you can buy right. stuff. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to see it. Um, and there's there were so many things like that in the original movie that did Lucas know what all of those things were, exactly where they were, exactly how they interacted with other things? I very much don't think so. George Lucas, if you uh, would like to come on our podcast and answer these questions. Yes, we'd love so to we ask welcome. you some questions. 
But like you mentioned all the different droid types, like how much of that was just like yeah. the props guys are like, make some cool looking shit. Just make some stuff and <laughs> yeah. we'll put it. <laughs> Here's a trash can, make a droid out of it. But especially in that world, you know, other authors take it and pick it up and do great things with it. But I think it does sort of show how you can plant seeds and never know if they're going to grow or not. But it helps give that sense of a full world, a full universe, that every character has a life that touches other lives and other things, even if they're not relevant to the central plot. They still exist. And I think that's why, from the very beginning, Star Wars felt real to me despite the space opera ridiculousness of it all, it felt like a world that was real. And that's what I aim for when when I am creating things and dropping in these references to, yeah, like, your characters may never, may never see it, may never have contact with it, but it exists somewhere out there. I'm always sort of reaching for that level of fullness to the world. That lived in, there is so much more beyond the scope of this story kind of feel. And in, to... to wrap around back to our, our main concept in filling out those other corners of the map you want to do just that that level of work where you you know there is a place over here it has a name and give just enough concept that there is this other place to let the the negative space be filled in and you can then that it is that it is a real lived in space where there are people living their lives and having their own stories that have nothing to do with the story you're telling and use that as just the way to give that life in a way that's hopefully not reductive and gross. And I think, and I hope that that is something that entices readers. I know it does me. If I'm reading a book and there are these kinds of references, my brain gets excited. My brain goes, oh, I'd love to think more about that. I'd love to delve more into that. I think it drives some readers crazy. Um, I, I think there are some readers who <laughs> want anything mentioned to be properly defined and used and, and be a Chekhov's gun later on. Um, I am not that way. I, I am content with and intrigued by all of that, yeah, filling. Because then it lets my imagination fill in the negative space, which I love doing. If we are going to talk about our world a little bit, we should probably shift to that now because we're going to yes. run out yes. of time. So in the world, the map that we did, we did, as we are wont to do, a full world map because that's, you know, and have only yes. defined that's... five spots over the whole world and they don't even touch each other. <laughs> And though with with the miracle that is the MNG is a miracle on so many levels, these spots do actually <laughs> touch each other in, in many different ways and places. And, and if we kind of swing back around to the idea of, you know, you, you define a lot of things before you even re realize you've defined a lot of things about places in the world that you haven't even actually thought about or, or talked about. We defined a lot of things about the spaces in our world that we haven't ever talked about. We've defined that the geography of the world is relatively linked so that you don't have isolated sections of space. Um, we define that the MNG is touching everywhere in one way or another. We haven't yet defined if there are major hubs or what exactly the MNG subway map looks like. We'll probably put a pin in that for now, but it's there. It exists. <laughs> we defined um, like the kind of biomes and, and geography, basically, of all the spaces just by what they were in relation to each other. And then by kind of continuing to define what the cultures in our particular areas look like and what the geography and the climate and all that fun stuff looks like, anything that kind of touches close to us, we've got a hint about what that area might be like, barring any kind of magical shenanigans. And speaking of magical shenanigans, we decided very early on that the world has magic and that magic is different in every spot in the world. So we have a lot of things defined and a lot of things still to play with actually like again we don't we we sort of now know especially with the use of the mng that there really isn't a mystery part of the world that people don't know about although it occurs to me just just a second that you're not going to have the same kind of map making of the world that would show 
like the world as a globe because you know you're gonna see fewer people who are doing you know sailing and circumnavigating just for the sake of doing that and thus creating you know accurate charts of where all the continents are and everything we still do need that though don't we for trade we do yeah and it also makes me wonder it makes me wonder how long have we had the mng how much world exploration had to happen before it or i don't think we've ever decided how long we've had as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be i don't know (laughs) Yeah, we haven't decided exactly how the the origin story of the MNG. Like, is this something that's only turned on in the past few centuries? And if so, who turned it on? And it becomes that then becomes a big question. Or is it something that sort of naturally grew through some magical hickory wettery that just exists and has always existed, and thus that's how so much of the world exploration occurred but yeah it just occurs to me that a lot of people in this world will think of the world not as a globe with a lot of continents but as as a subway map i think you're absolutely yeah i think you're absolutely right that a lot of the way that they would conceive of distance and what is close and what is a neighbor changes drastically right because sure you have your neighbor who's just across that river over there but you also have your neighbor that's just the MNG, even though they're on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what is going to be a like cultural impact on your culture, probably the MNG link-up culture is going to have greater impact than like those guys over the mountains over there, even though theoretically they're right there. That will have fascinating implications for like language group development, religious spread, all those little cultural things that you know, often you have more of that in common with your immediate neighbors. Even if it's that you disagree on an interpretation of, you know, a religion or the correct way to say the word yes, like you're coming from a common base with your immediate neighbors physically. Now it's going to be your immediate neighbors that you have connections with through the MNG. Oh, that's fascinating. Oh, I would now I want to make language maps. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cass yeah, because I probably shouldn't do that. We should know. Okay. Especially if no, you have, no, we have if you have two places that the link through the MNG is is bilateral, then for all intents and purposes that becomes one community in two places. Because the amount of linguistic and social sharing and growth is going to be it's going to be they're going to do it together even if they are different cultures there's going to be there the symbiosis between them is going to be so thorough that on some level it's going to be one culture in two places but that may be related a lot more to non-tangible elements of culture right you know, because they can't necessarily, you know, without, I mean, they may or may not have an easy trade route between them for physical things. But things like, things like stories, songs, even religious faith, faith yeah, yeah, language, things like that, they're going to have that link. And some, and like maybe some, and maybe some things like clothing styles that like you could remember and, and replicate it. Or I could, I could, I could, you know, we... We've we've got a way of firing pottery. I'm going to come teach you how to do this now because yeah. you know I can I can teach you how to do this, but I can't bring them through. But if we don't have access to the same kinds of Materials. cloth, if we don't have access to the same kinds of things that pottery is made out of, <laughs> I was just thinking mud was mud was the only word coming <laughs> yes, to mind. That's correct. It's uh, essentially what it's it is, right? Plays mud. If yeah. we don't have, if we don't have, we could trade recipes, but if we don't have access to the same ingredients then that's going to be that's going to cause interesting shifts where like oh, we're trying to make the same things really, but with different materials that, that's going to be that really cool thing though that like 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 food right that when say a group moves from one area of the world to another and they can't get the same foods anymore like same ingredients and so they're like making you know the traditional foods from where they came from but with completely different ingredients and like all that cool stuff that happens with that you know that would be is if the gate is fully bi-directional but if say say you had like a ring of cities where like a the gate from a 
will take you to B, and the gate from B will take you to C, and the gate from C will take you to D, and the gate from D will take you back to A. <laughs> Which is crazy. Then you're going to have all of those things, like, touching and influencing each other. And that's fascinating. Like, oh... We, we we have yeah. written our, we have written ourselves a problem, my friends. No, it's, it's not a problem, <laughs> we have. Marshall. It's a glorious opportunity. It's a glorious opportunity. It is. It's going to take more time than we have right now to talk this out. We've been saying we need to we need to figure out a map. We need to figure out a map, and not only what places are connected yeah. now in our world's present, but when different connections were made. But yeah, given this concept. The, the way that just a pure geographical, this is where the continents and coastlines and islands are, map in and of itself is nowhere near enough to be able to really discern who these people are and how they interact and how that grows together. Oh, wow. <laughs> though, though it also doesn't erase all of those things that we already know, right? It doesn't erase the yeah. fact that there are places that have a colder climate. It doesn't erase the fact that there are places that are yeah. going to right. be reliant on, like, you know, fishing because they're a coastal community. Like, we still know those things. So you get to, like, kind of, like, layer all this stuff on top of each other. I think we just blown all of our own brains. Yes, um, we did. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, we're all sitting here just, like, with these expressions of of awe and and intrigue on our faces. Like, this is a... This is a very much this, the feeling you get if you're at, like, the bottom of a mountain that you intend to climb. And you're seeing, you're seeing the full scope of, like, oh, this... I gotta do all that. But it seems so... It's but when cool. I do... It's cool and exciting, but you also know that's a lot ahead of you. There's a lot of work to do to get to the top. You know, and I have to say, and, and the thing is, some of these decisions, like, they all have such interesting implications. Like the idea of mm-hmm. if the MNG, particularly when when did the connections get made? Have they did they all happen at once? Has it been more recent, or is it something that is a it has always been this way? We don't remember a time when it wasn't. I mean, these all really impact how we answer these questions. And Marshall, feel free to edit this out if you think this is a terrible idea. But I'd almost like to toss this to our Discord and say, like, I want to see what you guys think about this. Like, talk about this because. I am I am curious to see all the different paths that this could take before we start making decisions about it and, and calling the shots. It is one of their favorite things to talk about. They they they, they really it is because like one of the things that comes up to me like is it is it a thing that turned on recently or has it always been? But if it's always been, is it constantly growing? Is there moments where like oh yeah. a new gate just opened up? And do gates close? And do gates close? And I feel like we've said things around these topics before, which means we once again need to return to my failure um, as a human being (laughs) of not having compiled all of our data yet. So I mean, if you haven't made these these particular decisions yet, this has all been kind of still still floaty. So don't blame yourself, Cass. This is this is all of our fault. So here's so here's so here's what's gonna happen. Yeah, we're gonna toss this idea to to our listeners, to the Discord, um, to Twitter as well, wherever you want to talk about it. Tell us your ideas, argue, discuss pros and cons of different different possibilities. We're gonna not make any decisions really yet. Y'all do that. I will eventually actually compile all the things we have said thus far. And of course, just because we said something on a previous podcast doesn't mean we can't change our minds about it too. We'll see where that gets us. Over the next year or so. How about that? <laughs> we'll check back in at the start of year five. <laughs> we'll check in far before then. See, we'll see we'll where we are. We'll far before then. But maybe over the course of this next year, we will actually like flesh out the concept of the MNG. And then we can do an anthology. Yay! Feel free to delete that if you don't want to make that promise on the air yet. <laughs> but... No, but. I, I actually kind of want to keep it just to hold our feet to the fire. <laughs> like, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would I mean I would seriously love to put that together. I think that'd be amazing. <laughs> I, let's let, actually let's let's even be bolder. Let's take that as a goal for over the course of this year. Okay, this. getting ourselves all right, getting cool our asses positioned. Yeah, yeah, getting ourselves in a position where we can where we can start putting that together. Yes, 
because it'll take time. We're going to need a good framework before we can, this is, you know, this pitch, is this, our, pitch this idea to others and solicit others. This but. is our year four, year four resolution. Yeah, I like it. It is done. <laughs> this is the way. Awesome. So say we all. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on July 6th, where we will chase a proverbial cheese down the hill and talk about unique festivals and traditions in cultures. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the world you're making and help us all build until it hurts.